invite you to rise for the reading of the gospel. The holy gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to John. Glory to you, Lord Christ. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to his disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the two sons of Zebedee and two other disciples were together. Simon Peter said, I'm going fishing. And they said, we'll go with you. So they went, got in the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Now, just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, but they did not know it was Jesus. He said to them, children, do you have any fish? And they said, no. And he said, cast your net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. So they cast their net and were unable to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. Now, that disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it's the Lord. When he had said, it is the Lord, Peter wrapped his outer garment around himself for he had stripped himself for work and threw himself into the sea. The disciples came in the boat hauling the nets with all the fish for they were not far from the land, about a hundred yards. When they got on the land, they found a charcoal fire with fish on it and some bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard, hauled the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said, come have breakfast. Now, none of the disciples dared to say, who are you? For they knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them. And so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus had appeared to the disciples after being raised from the dead. After they were finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said, tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him a third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you that when you were young, you dressed yourself and walked where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. He said this to indicate the kind of death by which he would glorify God. And after saying this to him, he said, follow me. The gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Let us pray. Father, we believe that all Holy Scripture is written for our learning. And so we pray that now by your Holy Spirit, we would so hear, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest this, your Holy Word, that we would be changed more and more to be like Jesus for the sake of the world. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to be seated. I 
I am terrified of failure. I'm terrified of failure, big failure, little failure, big mess ups, little slip ups. I'm terrified of failure when I forget about the good news for failures. I'm terrified of failure when I forget the good news of God in scripture for failures. When I forget the gospel. Because if I'm honest, when I forget the gospel, I begin to believe that it is my performance that makes me acceptable. It is what I do that makes me worthwhile. I am desperately terrified to fail in anything. I mean, for example, I just got back yesterday from Kigali, Rwanda. As many of you know, I was uh, at the Global Anglican Futures Conference. Uh, 1,300 of Anglicans, bishops, archbishops, clergy, laity from all over the Anglican world, mostly Africa, Southeast Asia, South America. And I had the unique privilege and honor of reading Colossians each day of the week, the whole of the book. And as you know, I didn't just get up and read. They expected someone to pull up a manuscript, but instead I stood up and just did Colossians, memorized, dramatized in front of the room. And people lost their minds. They loved it, especially the Africans. They just loved it. I mean, accolade after accolade. You are a walking mobile Bible, they would tell me. They say, do you know it all? Is it all in there? One archbishop said, you know it all. I said, really? He said, you know it all. Start with Genesis. Go now. <laughs> I mean, it was just, it was amazing. Accolade after accolade. Oh, I mean, the, the Ugandan archbishop publicly asked our archbishop Foley that he would give me to Uganda. I mean, it was just accolade after accolade. But of course, as I'm flying home, what am I thinking about? I'm thinking about that one guy on day two who came up to me and said, you know you got two prepositions wrong. (laughs) We focus in on those kind of comments because we are terrified of getting it wrong. We're terrified of failure. And you know what I'm talking about. It's because we forget the gospel. We forget the good news of God and Jesus. The grace offered to failures. You know, the difficulty in the words of Miroslav Volf, the Croatian theologian, he says that we live in a secular society now that is therefore stripped of grace. I'll say that again. We live in a secular society that is therefore stripped of grace. And so what do you do with failures in a society that is stripped of grace? You have to try and forget about your failures or minimize your failures or project your failures onto someone else. Instead of facing your failures head on with Jesus. See, here's the amazing thing that happens in John 21. If you open your Bibles with me, is here in John 21 with Peter in the story of epic, epic failure. We see the incredible grace of God for failures. What do we see here in John 21? That Jesus meets this failure named Peter in his failure. He meets him in his failure, doesn't run from him, doesn't ignore him. Peter doesn't have to go looking for him. Jesus finds him and meets him in his failure. But not only does he meet him in his failure, Jesus mends him. He comes for the purpose of making things right, of helping Peter be transformed by this encounter. And we could almost stop right there, except it gets even better. 
Not only do we see Jesus meeting Peter in this failure and mending him, but the whole reason he does it is to get Peter back on mission, to get Peter back at work the call that's been given to him. And so it is for you and I. See, we've got to begin with the fact that Jesus meets us in our failures. And just to be clear, Peter is a colossal failure. And his failures are all over this passage. John writes this in such a way that we're supposed to be fully aware of just how big a mess Peter's made of things. You see it first in the reference to the charcoal fire in verse nine. When they get off the fishing boat, the first thing they see is a charcoal fire, verse nine. There's only one other place in the entire Bible that that particular word in Greek for charcoal fire is used. It's three chapters earlier in John chapter 18, verse 18, when Peter is warming himself by a charcoal fire as he denies Jesus three times. Jesus is being tried and flogged and beaten and Peter is warming himself by a charcoal fire denying that he even knows Jesus. So when Peter gets off the shore, the first thing is the remembrance of that horrific epic failure moment. On top of that, in verse 15, 16, and 17, when Jesus is asking him the threefold, do you love me, do you love me, do you love me? He calls him Simon, son of John. He doesn't call him Simon Peter or Peter, which he's been calling him ever since he gave him a new name, right? Simon was named Simon by his mother and he was named Peter by Jesus. Peter, Petros, the rock. For you are the rock on which I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Jesus is suddenly calling him Simon. Why is he calling him Simon? Where did Peter go? Exactly, where did Peter go? He's not the rock that he was called to be. He's being reminded even in this conversation of his deep failure. And I love the fact that Jesus says in verse 15, do you love me more than these? What does he mean by that? Do you love me more than these? More than who? More than these other disciples. Why does he say that? Because Peter himself back in John chapter 13, verse 13, decided to tell Jesus that everyone else may walk away from you. All these but I will never walk away from you. And here's Jesus saying, so Peter, do you really love me more than these? Peter is facing down everything that went wrong in those days leading up to the death and resurrection of the son of God. But here's what's amazing is though Peter is being confronted with his epic failure, the first thing Jesus does with him is invites him to breakfast. He says, come have breakfast, verse 12. And, and we may think, oh, it's just sort of a preliminary before the repentance, which is coming. Repentance is coming in a moment. But that's not how it works in the ancient Near East. To eat together, table fellowship in the ancient Near East is about acceptance of one another. To eat with another person is to say, you're my brother, you're my sister, I accept you as you are. We will eat with anyone in the West. We eat in food courts, in malls. But in the ancient Near East, if you sit across with another person, you're saying, we're in this together and I accept you. It's why Jesus drove the Pharisees nuts because he kept eating with the wrong people. This man eats with tax collectors and sinners, they say of him in Luke chapter 15. And Jesus says, exactly. What gives? Isn't the order wrong here? Shouldn't Peter and Jesus have this threefold, do you love me conversation first 
and then have breakfast? Did John get the order wrong? No, the order is exactly right. Here's why. Because though Peter does need to repent, that is coming. Though Peter has epically failed, Peter has not ceased to be a disciple. Peter is a terrible disciple right now. He's a bad Christian. He's not doing a good job at all, but that doesn't mean he's no longer a disciple. He hasn't lost his status. Because when Jesus comes into our lives by grace through faith and makes us his own, we in our own actions cannot undo what he has done. When Jesus comes into our lives and we accept him by grace through faith, in the words of John 1, 12, all who believed in him, that is Jesus, and believed in his name, he gave the power to become children of God. When that happens, when you become a son or daughter of God, that is a new life, a new status, a new identity for you that cannot be taken away. You can be a terrible son or a terrible daughter, but you're still a son, you're still a daughter. When Jesus died on the cross and he said, it is finished, as he was bearing the sins of humanity, when we say in the Eucharistic liturgy, he died once for all, we don't mean once just for all people. We mean he died once for all people, for all your sin that you have committed, that you are committing and will commit. In that one moment on the cross, all of sin was covered. Those who would come to him by grace through faith. Ephesians chapter two, you have been saved by grace through faith, not of your own works. We come to him by grace and we stay with him by grace, not because we have managed to stay with him. You cannot lose your status as a son and daughter. You can be a terrible son and daughter, but you're still a son and daughter. You know, I think the best example of this in my life, I've used this story many times. Uh, I've said it before, many of you have heard it, but um, my, my dad is actually here this morning. And so it's a story about him. And so it, it, it even, you know, lands better. And so I remember when I was a kid, one of my favorite things was going to my dad's office because my dad was a lawyer in this, you know, big law firm that had the entire top floor of this, what I thought was a skyscraper. It was probably just, you know, it was like 12 stories. But for me, it was like this massive skyscraper. And I loved getting in the elevator because I'd go up the elevator and the doors of the elevator would open and that there'd be the reception, right? And that's like the, the gatekeeper, right? They've got to keep the people out. And I would just walk right past the reception. Why? Because I was a son of the senior partner. And then there'd be a waiting room and I would just walk by the waiting room. I didn't sit in the waiting room. The mayor might be sitting in the waiting room, but I didn't sit in the waiting room. I'm a son. And I would walk through the office. I might go in the break room and grab a little snack. I'd go up to the office, never knock. I'd just open the door, sit down, put my feet up on the desk. Why? Because I was a son. Then when I was 14, I did something in high school that managed me to get suspended for half the day. Now, don't let your minds run. It wasn't that bad, but it was enough to get suspended and sent. And I was told I had to go to my dad's office. And so they called my dad and I had to get on the bus and go downtown and, and go to my dad's office. So I, for the first time, I arrived at that elevator and thought, I don't know what's going to happen when that door opens. I mean, I'm in big trouble. So I rode up the elevator and the doors opened and Lo and behold, the secretaries didn't stop me. The gatekeepers didn't hold me back. I was still able to go through because I was still a son and walked past the waiting room. I didn't have to sit in the waiting room. I thought that might happen. No, just kept going. Didn't go to the break room. I wasn't going to push it. But I went up to my dad's door 
and it was cracked open. I knocked on the door and he says, son, you don't need to knock. You never knock. And I just opened the door and went and sat down. Now, let me be clear. I was in big trouble, but I still had access because I was still a son. And so it is for you and I, when we epically, epically, horribly fail, which we will, our status does not change. We are still disciples. We're still part of the family. And that acceptance and that openness is still there. We don't repent in order to have the fruit of acceptance. We're accepted so that we can have the fruit of repentance. By the grace of God, you and I are what we are. Jesus meets with failures. Now, some of you, that's enough. You could just say, there's the, there's the gospel. That's all I need to hear today. There's more. Then he mends us. See, in verses 15, 16, and 17, he asks, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Yes, I do. Yes, I do. You know I do. This is actually, I think, the best picture in all of scripture of what repentance really looks like. Because repentance in the words of Eugene Peterson, is saying no to one thing so you can say yes to something else. Repentance is a change of heart, a change of mind, a change of perspective, a change of your way. No longer going one way, instead going another way. What Jesus is doing here with Peter is saying, listen, you've started going the wrong way. You denied me three times. And so three times, I'm gonna give you the opportunity to go in another way. He's showing a change of heart. Don't you love it how Peter, when asked, do you love me, says, Lord, you know that I love you. In fact, in verse 17, he says, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Peter's telling the truth. He does love Jesus. He didn't stop loving Jesus. Peter, just in his waywardness, started loving other things around him more than Jesus. The love wasn't lost. The love was just quenched. The love was pushed to the side but the love was there. And what Jesus is doing is calling out this man back to a place of love, returning him back to his first love. That love that is there is there. So now turn from these other false loves, Peter, and turn your love back to me, for this is what we were made for. Deuteronomy chapter six, we said it at the beginning of our liturgy. We say it every week. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That this love for God is what we are made for. And what Peter is being called to is to return to that love. The Westminster Catechism, opening sentence, says it brilliantly. Man, humanity's chief aim, chief goal is what? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. This is what we've been made for. And yet, like Peter, we will fail. We will end up being promiscuous with our love towards other things in this life that will draw us away from the love of Christ. What's the solution to bring us back? Jesus doesn't, <laughs> repentance isn't rubbing your nose in your sin, right? It's, repentance isn't like when the dog does something gross in the house, you, you know, you take their nose and you rub them, you know, you look what you did. I mean, you know, you know that doesn't actually do anything, you know, like it makes you maybe feel a bit better, but it doesn't like help the dog. We, you know, we rub our face, Repentance isn't rubbing our face in our sin. Don't you feel terrible about it? Repentance is turning our face back towards God. 
Repentance is having our love renewed. You know, when we were in GAFCON this week, one of the leading scholars on Thomas Cranmer, who was the first Archbishop of Canterbury um, within the Protestant Reformation, who, uh, you know, wrote the prayer book, really edited the prayer book that we use in our liturgies. You know, he was there and he was talking about what Cranmer was trying to do with these liturgies. These liturgies that we say and recite week after week. Beautifully, what what Ashley Null said is the, the heart of what Cranmer was trying to do with these liturgies that you and I pray each and every week is that would renew our power to love. That as we recite and rehearse this liturgy again and again, as we contemplate the love of God, the grace of God shown to us, the amazing, amazing redemption that's been won for us, as we're shown this love, that our capacity for love is renewed. This is what Jesus is doing. This is what repentance is, having our ability to love renewed and refocused. but it gets even better. See, it's not just that Jesus meets failures where they're at, brings them to a meal, nor that he mends and brings us to that place of repentance, transforming our hearts. You know, that first John four, you know, we love because God first loved us, right? That work of repentance, a renewed heart for love. But then he does it all for this reason, to get Peter back on mission. And he does the same for you and I, to get us back on mission, back to the purpose he's made us for. You know, verse 15, 16, and 17, Jesus says to Peter, feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. And you go, that's shepherding language. And it's a little strange because the shepherding language is language that Jesus would actually use of himself. Next week, I'll be preaching on uh, John chapter 10, the famous good shepherd passage where Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, right? The Lord is my shepherd, Psalm 23 says. Well, here Jesus is asking us to enter into this shepherding work. And you wanna say, well, no, Jesus, that's, that's your job. What's my job? He says, no, no, that's exactly the point. Remember what he said in the last chapter, chapter 20? The night of the resurrection, he looked at the disciples bearing those wounds of crucifixion and he said, as the father has sent me, so I am sending you. As the father sent me, just as, in the same way the father sent me, now I am also sending you. The same way that the father sent the son of God, now the son of God is sending you. Now Jesus, yes, has a unique work. Only he can be the savior of the world. But the shepherding of the world leading us in the way of Jesus, learning to understand who God is, this shepherding work he now calls us into. Do you notice at the beginning of this story in verse three, Peter's going back to fish. I'm going fishing, verse three. Don't, don't miss what this means. It says we're at the Sea of Tiberias. That's another name for the same place where Jesus met Peter the first time. It's the Sea of Galilee. This is exactly where Jesus met Peter the first time. And what did Jesus say to Peter when he first met him? Peter was in a fishing boat. Why? Because he was a fisherman fishing for fish. Peter, Jesus says, come follow me and I will make you fish for men, for people. So Peter goes on this three-year journey with Jesus. I'm learning to fish for people. And then right at the key moment, epic failure. Resurrection, amazing Forgiveness of sins, amazing. 
but you know, clearly I'm not the rock. Clearly I can't do the work he's called me to. Clearly I can't do this job. So what does Peter decide? To give up and go back to fishing for fish. I'm going fishing. And don't tell me you've not been there before too. We hit these places of failure. We feel like we're frauds. And we start saying, you know, maybe, maybe this Christianity thing didn't really work for me. Or at least that kind of active you know, extreme, live my life for Jesus stuff. You know, that, that, maybe that's for other people. I'm just gonna go back to my old patterns. They may be sorrowful, but at least they're familiar. Peter's going back fishing. Jesus says, no, get back to the work I've given you. Feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. A word to a failure. Yes, to a failure saved by grace. You know, I close with this, that when Monica and I were first married, we were having a difficulty finding a church. We hadn't yet found the Anglican church. I mean, I just, you know, but uh, no, I mean, it's all seriousness. You've been there. You know what this is like. You go trying different churches and you're like, this doesn't work and this doesn't work. And we like these three things, but then these three things were awful. I mean, we just were getting so frustrated and I just gave up. I'm like, I'm just not going to church. I'm just not doing it. I'm a Christian, but I'm not going to go to church. And to be honest, I just wandered far away from the Lord over several months. And Monica was faithful, but I was just like, I'm done. And then this guy in our community, a pastor named Snowy, met me and said, you got to come to church. I said, okay, kind of out of obligation. And I went to church with Snowy and the Lord met me there. And my broken wayward heart was mended and there was deep repentance and a deep returning of love, first love returned and it was profound. And I told Snowy and Snowy being a good pastor came and visited us that week at our apartment. And I I recounted this whole story, totally wayward, but the Lord met me and it was great. And then Snowy said, that's great. So I want you to preach at our midweek service next week. Now I hadn't gone to seminary yet, um, but I said, I said, I don't think you heard me. I said, I've been wayward. I've been away from the Lord for a while. And he said, exactly. We're not going to waste another minute. And he said, do not think that the Lord rescued you for you alone. He rescued you for the sake of others. So get back to work. Friends, this is the good news for failures. I can become terrified of failure, big and small. And it happens when I forget the gospel, when I forget the good news of God and Jesus Christ for failures, which is what we all are. We're all going to fall and we're all going to fail. And grace comes again and again. Look at Peter's story. Jesus meets him in his failure and he mends his broken heart with repentance, turning his heart back to love for him, all to get him back to mission. And so it is for you and I. You know, this is why we come to church every week. Because regardless of the week you had, right? Whether you think you had a great week following Jesus or a terrible week following Jesus, whether you think you're the superhero in the story this week, you're not. Or you think you're the supervillain in the story, you're not either. We come here And we find that the Lord meets us in our failings. And then he mends us. He, through word and sacrament, renews our power to love him, to return to our first love for him. Why? Not just for you and I, but to put us back in mission for the sake of others out there 
who do not know him, who have yet to meet the God who meets them in their failures, the God who will rescue them in their failures, the God who will show them a grace that they can never earn. This is why we are mended to get back on mission. You know, it's interesting. The last word, verse 19, that Jesus speaks to Peter, the last word that Jesus ever hears, that Peter ever hears from Jesus, is the same as the first word that Peter ever heard from Jesus. It's the same word. He says to him, and he says to you and I, every day, in the midst of our failures, no matter what you've done, no matter where you are, he says the same word, and these words are what bring about this transformation. He said it to Peter. He says it to you. Do you hear it now? Follow me. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.